Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. an Amazing Avenue alum. He wrote Yells for Ourselves, a story of New York City and the New York Mets at the dawn of the new millennium, which is a book about the 99 and 2000 Mets. It's a must read for any Met fan. So without any further ado, here's our chat with Matthew. I am joined today on Amazing Avenue in conversation by an Amazing Avenue alumnus, alumnus, alum. I, I never know when to say alum versus alumnus, but we'll call you both. Uh, Matthew Callen, who is the author of Yells for Ourselves, A Story of New York City and the New York Mets, The Dawn of the Millennium, a truly fantastic book that is available right now. So, Matt, thank you for coming on the show. When did you write for Amazing Avenue for our listeners? Oh, thank, first off, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, it's great to be back home at Amazing <laughs> Avenue, I guess. Uh, I wrote... For Amazing Avenue from, I, if I'm remembering correctly, I believe 2010 through 2014, which were some pretty um, <laughs> uninspiring <laughs> years to be covering the Mets in any capacity. Um, but um, yeah, I tried, tried to wring as much out of uh, the lean, uh, you know, Jerry Manuel years as uh, as I could. Oh, playa. Um, <laughs> is there a player that you sort of identify as like endemic of those Mets teams? You know, I was literally trying to think about that, uh, earlier 
because I was <laughs> I was thinking about when I wrote and like those teams and it's kind of a blur because they were all kind of miserable. Um, If we wanted to be positive, we could say um, R.A. Dickey. Sure. Who was, you know, who was active at that time and, you know, won the Cy Young Award and was immediately flipped for um, Noah Syndergaard. Um, And John Buck. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, of course. Just messing with you. But yes, of course. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And um, yeah, and I'm trying to think of like, I was trying to think of somebody of, you know, some sort of like obscure Met. Um, Oh, you know what? Here's a good example. Um, This is probably a, a, you know, a somewhat sad example, but Ike Davis is probably an indicative of that period where he came up. He was, he was pretty good for a while and then Mm -hmm. fell off a cliff. I think just due to, if I'm remembering this correctly, I think he had like Valley uh, fever. Yeah. Valley fever. I couldn't (laughs) remember what it was, but just one of those things where like, you know, people say like only the Mets and a lot of times that's like exaggerating and, you know, people gloss over the fact that, you know, you're always going to look at your own team, you know, as like putting you through hell, you know, more so than other people's teams do. But that was one of those things where it definitely seemed like, has this ever happened to another team where they had a guy who was, you know, looked like he might be, you know, a slugger and falls prey to uh you know a some kind of condition that is not like life-threatening but basically ends his baseball career you know and that that no one's ever heard of either so (laughs) yeah uh i was i was trying to think of a player like you know who do i think of when i think of those years and a name that kept coming back to me was angel pagan oh yeah that's a good one seems like a guy who was who was there who was almost good the whole time, but was never quite good. You know, just very indicative of those teams. And then wound up being, you know, sort of a, I don't want to say spare part, but, you know, he had some some important contributions to the Giants when they, you know, won a couple of World Series. So, you know, just, you know, he was a decent guy on bad Mets teams and was an okay guy on some... (laughs) <laughs> good other yeah. teams and that also seems like the perfect Mets story it seemed like for a while there anyone who was just okay with the Mets we would let walk and then mm-hmm. become great for somebody else see Justin yep. Turner yep. you know you say Angel Pagan there's, there's lots of examples of that um but anyway we're not here to talk about <laughs> weird Mets from the early two from the early teens we're here to talk about your book so I know this book is a labor of love for you. It's a long time coming. When did you start this book? And sort of what was the initial impulse to write a, a book about these Mets years? Well, I think it was just um, it just loving those teams so much. Um, those teams being in the 1999 and 2000 Mets. The 99 team, I think, in particular, has like a, there's a soft spot in my heart for that team. And I think for a lot of Mets fans who are sort of around my age, which would mean that in 1999, you were probably like, you might've been in high school or in college or just out of college. And that was sort of like your team in a, in a way it was the first Mets team that had been good in a very long time or had been a playoff contender in a very long time. And, um, you know, just, there was for me in particular, that team was, you know, I had loved baseball as a kid. I kind of fell away from it. I think as a lot of people do, as they get older, 
And that was a team that like sucked me back into, you know, loving baseball and loving the Mets again. And so it was sort of like, I feel like a, a debt to that team to sort of like celebrate it. Um, you basically as far described as, like, my experience, by the way. I was okay. I was 17 in 99 and uh, had, had fallen off for a couple of years. And so that was the team that brought me back as well. So it's really cool to hear you say that. Yeah, I mean, I think I know that was my very particular experience, but I think it might have been, you know, as you just described, I think it might have been an experience that a lot of people had. And I think especially if you were a Mets fan and for much of the 90s, what did you have to cheer for at all except for, you know, Todd Hundley occasionally, Carlos you know, Bayerga. like the, <laughs> Carlos Bayerga, like the very first Subway Series game and then basically none of them after that for a couple of years. Um yeah, so I mean, uh, as far as like the the origin of the book itself, um, I used to have a blog, and just uh, just for just because I, I want again, I wanted to celebrate this team. Um, on the blog, I did like literally a day by day look back at the '99 Mets uh, in 2009, sort of sort of celebrating the 10th anniversary of it. Um, and then the next, by the next year, I was writing for Amazing Avenue and did the same thing for 2000, a little in a little more condensed form. It wasn't exactly a day by day thing, but it was, it was a you know a pretty close survey of the seasons, and in doing that, sort of recognized how much, uh, you know, the sort of narrative that was woven around those two teams, you know, in the media. And how much it had to do with what was happening in New York City at that particular time, which already 10 years on was like, you know, it was seemed like it was a completely different place already. And and that was essentially, you know, just in doing that and recognizing that was probably the, the you know, the biggest uh, impetus for trying to weave it into an actual uh, narrative form that it's in now. It, it, it's I'm glad that you brought up sort of New York City at that time. What I was struck by when reading the book was because you know I I live I grew up in you know, northern New Jersey and so was living in this area until I went to college in Pittsburgh in uh, August of 2000. But so most of this book takes place when I was just a few miles from the action, and uh, I had forgotten sort of the events that dovetailed with these teams like for instance you mentioned the art exhibit at the brooklyn museum where somebody had used elephant dung to uh, paint the virgin mary and how that was a really big deal or something like Mm -hmm. hillary clinton's run for senate as a carpetbagger you know not from new york but running for senate in new york and Mm -hmm. i had forgotten sort of how many of those things were happening at that exact time and it seemed like a really wild time to be a New Yorker as well as a wild time for the Mets. So I guess my question for you is when you started researching this, did you remember all of that, that that's when it was happening concurrently or as you were doing your research and you came upon certain dates and you realized like, Oh shit, that was a week before this happened. You know, I guess, you know, how, how strong was your memory of those non-baseball events before you started writing the book? I think it, um, you know, I like, I, I certainly remembered it's, uh, certain things better than others on a, you know, chronologically. Mm-hmm. Um, I think probably what happened a lot and what really 
drove the decision to kind of, you know, weave a lot of stuff about New York City at that time into it was that it was just doing the research, like literally Googling or, you know, just looking up, you know, just trying to find archives of articles about the Mets uh, from the, that time. It was almost impossible to not find frequently that baseball was getting, you know, sort of like uh, swept up in whatever was happening happening in the city at that particular time. Um, you know, the there's a you mentioned the the Brooklyn Museum thing, which was like it was kind of like a big um, you know Rudy Giuliani era thing where he got very upset about uh, a, an African artist who was displaying who was going to be part of an exhibit there. They use elephant dung in a painting that was called, uh, I believe it was called the Virgin Mary or, or something to that effect. And he threatened to cut funding from the museum and it became a big, uh, obviously a big free speech issue. Um, and I probably wouldn't have even mentioned that in the book at all, except um, not to spoil it, but there's like a small, there's a little anecdote in there about um that's uh Mets related and I, I remember that article kind of coming up in a you know in a, in a search and uh there was a source for that anecdote and just remembering oh yeah that happened that year and just how you know just how impossible it was to not um find baseball stuff and Mets stuff in you know city politics or, or you know city civic life um and how much you know politics and other concerns intruded into baseball it was like it worked both ways yeah um it, it was really a fascinating sort of trip back through that time in the new york metropolitan area because i think it's easy for us to you know sort of in broad strokes remember you know before the disneyfication of times square or before um you know, Giuliani came in and, and really cleaned up the streets. But it's really interesting to juxtapose that with events that I remember really well. Like, you know, I definitely remember when those things, I remember noticing that those things had happened or reading about those things happening. But I wasn't thinking about them as happening contemporaneously to these baseball moments, which obviously had such a huge impact on my life. So I really enjoyed that part of the book. I, I thought it was a really surprising piece of the story that I didn't expect to find in there. So uh, thanks for including that stuff. That was really fun. Cool. Well, I'm, uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And I, you know, I, uh, you know, again, like I said, it was almost impossible to not write about that. I think it was important to give like, at the very least, I think it was important to give sort of a context of, of what was happening in the city at the time. And, uh, you know, it's sort of, sort of parallel there's you know the book goes into it but it's sort of paralleled like what was happening in the city was very much sort of paralleled by what was happening baseball wise in the city uh you know especially with like the yankees being this sort of monolithic dynasty and the mets just trying to find some sort of place for themselves in the in the city that had changed a huge amount between the times that they were last relevant in the eighties and, and then into the late nineties again. Yeah. What I always remember about those years as a Mets fan is, you know, when I was growing up, I would say my group of friends was majority leaning Yankees, but, but 
even so, there was very little competition between the two teams. Like, I don't think my Yankee fan friends ever gave me a hard time about being a Met fan or vice versa. It was just sort of these two teams somewhat peacefully coexisted in the eyes of at least, you know, the young fan. But around this time is when you really start to see uh, true partisanship between Yankee fans and Mets fans. And there were a couple of years there where I feel like the Yankees were more disliked by Mets fans than the Phillies or the Braves were, which is insane because those teams were playing the Mets all the time and the Yankees rarely did. But it really became this territorial, uh, you know, sort of uh, Warriors-esque existence where there were <laughs> Mets fans and Yankee fans, and it was it was very unpleasant for a while between then. But in doing your research, did you come across sort of a, a tipping point from when that sort of rivalry started? Was it right around this time, or was that just, you know, indicative of sort of my age at the time and my personal experience? I, I kind of feel the same way that you're, you know, that you're describing from your own experience, that they're really in the 80s, um, you know, maybe even going back farther than that, there really wasn't the same, I think, level of animosity. I don't, I think it was definitely more subdued. Um, I feel like the, in just in doing the research for this book, it seems to me like the advent of the regular season subway series was really the, the, um, sort of the, the impetus for that. That was, that kind of cranked things up to, uh, to another level. I remember I actually, um, I had a thing in the book where that had to cut for space, unfortunately, but there was a, uh, I had found a lot of articles late in actually 1985 when both the Mets and the Yankees were kind of in the hunt for the playoffs. Mm -hmm. And it seems from the way the coverage was at that time, it seems like things were much more friendly. It seems like people were very excited in a not um, like a not uh, really antagonistic way about the prospect of of a possible subway series. Um, that as it turned out that neither team made the playoffs that year. So it be, it quickly kind of fizzled out. So who knows what would have happened if they had actually come close to that happening. Maybe we would have seen that animosity. Right. Uh, but then you flash forward 12 years later, 1997, you have the first uh, subway series game and there's, there's a huge amount of animosity among the fans of the teams for each other. Um, especially, um, a lot of animosity. Um, you know, just, I mean, it doesn't, you didn't have to dig too deep. All of the contemporary accounts at that time, um, touch on it and they try to dismiss it. They always kind of present it you know, couch it in terms of like, it's good natured or it's, you know, it's just, it's just fan enthusiasm. But then you would read what people were actually saying. And it seemed like much, much more <laughs> um, hostile than just, you know, enthusiasm for your team. It seemed very much like also hatred for the other team. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I think I mean, just contrasting those two, I, I had hoped to do that in the book. I, I, I wish I could have written about that 1985 segment. I had something written, and unfortunately, there's just there's a lot of stuff that I had to cut just to uh, 
to get the book into uh, <laughs> into um, actual um, you know a size that <laughs> that um, they would actually publish. <laughs> um, the my original manuscript was probably uh, close to twice as long as the wow. finished book, um, and I'm sure a lot of that, you know, if I'm being you know perfectly honest, I'm sure a lot of that, you know is not missed, you know, like I, I, it's a thing where, you know, if you less is more probably. Um, but there's a couple of things that I, I remember, you know, originally having in the book that I wish I could have kept. And I think that was one of them, but I just could not squeeze it in there. Um, but it, I think it sort of serves as a con, you know, to show that there was a time where things weren't quite as antagonistic and that really that, first subway series was was where you see it bubbling up for the first time uh there was a book that was just released a few months ago called doc donnie the kid and billy brawl how the 85 mets and yankees fought for new york's baseball soul it's by a guy named chris donnelly it's fantastic it's a really mm. good book that looks at, at that season uh from the perspective of the two teams kind of you know the, the yankees were were falling down and the mets were rising up and they kind of met in the middle for that season and uh, I highly recommend it. And they, they do talk about the – it's written by a guy named Chris Donnelly, and Chris talks about the uh, the sort of perception of just how the Mets were this really fun, really um, you know up-and-coming team, and the Yankees were kind of this dysfunctional mess. And it's just funny to think of the Yankees as a dysfunctional Mets, a mess in the era of, like, the Wilpon ownership and uh, – you know, Valley Fever, etc. It's funny to to think of the Mets as the team that had their shit together once upon a time. Yeah, I mean, I mean, at that time, and I touch on it a little bit in the book. Um, again, not as extensively as as maybe as uh, you know. You know, I, I wish I could have gone a little bit more into it, but um, I mean, in the eighties, the the Yankees were generally, for most of the eighties, anyway. Um, the Yankees were were a mess, uh, and the mess was laid right at the feet of George Steinbrenner, um, which again I think might be a little difficult for people to to remember. You know, if you weren't alive then, or or you don't, you know, or you're very young, you don't remember it that well. I mean, he was universally loathed, and universally loathed by Yankees fans too. Like Yankees fans did not like him. They did not like the way that he constantly meddled with the team and his like his sort of iron grip on the roster, um, especially for signing free agents who often wound up being busts. And, um, you know, they were just like, they couldn't, they basically couldn't buy a headline in the eighties next to the Mets uh, unless it was related to George Steinbrenner doing something, you know, short-sighted or him blowing up at somebody or him firing Billy Martin for the 8 millionth time. I mean, it was a, it was a, you know, it's, again, it's difficult to, if you weren't around then to sort of, uh, sort of remember that because he's, because of what happened in the nineties with the Yankees where they had their dynasty. Um, and he was a little more hands off at that point. He essentially essentially wiped away the memory of that completely, and now he's he's kind of sainted again, especially among Yankees fans who tend to remember that you know the '90s, early 2000s dynasty and forget 
what he was doing in the eighties, which, you know, if I was a Yankees fan, I would, I would probably do that as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Lucky land casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha. In my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about a couple of things in the book that just, to me, were so indicative of the era. And... um. The one thing I want to talk about, which is kind of an odd thing to talk about, is who let the dogs out? So this was the the Mets, uh, what, what I perceived as the Mets sort of rally and cry that season. I remember going to games at Shea that summer and hearing that song played and, you know, watching the uh, sort of the playoff push. And that was always the, the celebratory song at the end of the night. But you blew my mind. Apparently that was the celebratory song for like every team in baseball that year. Um, that seems like something that's, it wasn't pre-internet, but it was pre-sort of easy access to everything on the internet. And I wonder how many instances like that would you sort of find if you looked back at, you know, at all at all of baseball history of just things happening, you know, kind of organically across baseball. But that's, uh, to, the, re- the reason that's interesting to me is that, it seems to me like that was the first time that the Mets, I guess you can count the Mojo Rise in the year before, which was their their sort of uh, winning music the year before. But this was the first time that the Mets had a discernible personality in a while. And there were certain players that definitely fed into that personality. And I think that, you know, the biggest probably uh, relic of that time in terms of the person who just represented all of the Mets were good and bad at the er- of the era was Bobby Valentine. And so I want to talk about Bobby V a little bit. I think I have a very rose-colored memory of Bobby Valentine as a Mets manager, but reading this book, I was constantly taken aback by how many weird decisions he made and sort of how just oddly he managed at times. How did your perception of Bobby Valentine change from what you remembered versus what you researched? I think I, in in my memory, I kind of, you know, I always kind of liked him, you know, while recognizing that he, he drove a lot of people crazy, including people on his own team and in his front office. Um, I think, I think ultimately after doing all the research and everything, I think that he is, is a genuinely, um, genuinely, uh, talented and, and skilled and unique baseball mind. And I think he was, in many respects, a good manager, um, and that he just would undermine himself often mm. by, you know, just being impolitic in various ways and, you know, not being able to basically keep his mouth shut. Like, I can't imagine, I know that he, you know, he did get another uh, chance at managing the Red Sox years ago that ended pretty disastrously. Mm. 
but I can't imagine somebody like him managing now. I mean, just, just for the sheer like PR nightmare that it would probably be on a daily basis. Like that's, that's not how, um, that's not how like teams are, are run now for, in, for various reasons. Um, I mean, I think that he, I think that he was in many ways sort of, uh, but I also think he was also, um, some of the, uh, like, you know, many of the controversies were of his own making, certainly. Uh, but he also kind of wound up being in charge of a Mets team that wasn't always suited to his best, um, his, his like best talents. Um, he was very much a guy who, um, was good at, um, at ringing, uh, performances out of younger players. Like he was a good, he was a good like teacher of the game and he could do a lot with, um, young players or marginal players. Uh, and he always clashed with veterans. Um, when he first took over the Mets, I think in like, late in 1996, they were still, they, they were not very good at that point And they didn't have a lot of veterans and most of the people on the team were products of their farm system. And then shortly after he became the manager, uh, Steve Phillips became the GM and Steve Phillips vision for the team was to do what a lot of teams at that point in the late nineties were doing, which was stock up on pricey veterans as long as you could afford it. And the Mets at that time, believe it or not, could afford it. <laughs> and so immediately there was sort of like a, a sort of like a personality crisis of Bobby Valentine having a team on his hands that he that wasn't the kind of team that you know if given his druthers he would have he would have led. Um, for instance, I think after the 1997 season, um, where the only stars that the Mets had that season were really John Olerud and Todd Hundley was a pretty big star at, at that time. Um, everyone else on the team was kind of like a, I mean, I, I could probably think of a few exceptions, but it was a pretty sort of like no name team that did okay that season. They kind of overachieved. And at the end of that season, I think Steve Phillips described them as a good little team with good little players. And it sounds very condescending and I'm sure he meant it to be condescending because he had designs on, on making a team full of stars. And that's not, that wasn't again, not suited to like Bobby Valentine's sort of uh, his personality or his talents. So I think it's sort of two pronged. I think he, you know, I, I, you could certainly question a lot of what he did on and off the field during the period, but um, he also sort of was always waging a little bit of a war uh, with Steve Phillips and, and to a smaller extent, the ownerships like uh, that, um, you know, he had, he, you know, never had planned on doing. Yeah. It's amazing. You mentioned before how it will be hard for you to imagine a manager like Bobby Valentine being hired today. I think it's equally mm -hmm. hard to imagine Steve Phillips coming to prominence today. Yeah. They're I, both kind of products of their time in a way. 
definitely. I mean, the thing with, I mean, other than the fact that people don't really build teams in that manner anymore. Um, Steve Phillips also had a number of, of issues that it sort of touch on in the book that would probably not fly in this era either. Yes. That's a nice way to put it. Yeah. Um, now, were there any players that, you know, you loved growing up with this team that when you look back on were, you know, maybe less special than you remember them being or vice versa, a player you sort of always kind of dismissed, but when you look back on it, you thought, Oh, that, that, that was a really good player. That guy was important to the Mets. Um, I don't know. Like, as far as the players go, I kind of was at the same place um, when I started, <laughs> when I ended as when I started. Okay. Um, you know, I of these teams, I, I always really loved Edgardo Alfonso. Um, you know, obviously, you know, Mike Piazza was probably the most important person on that team. And it's, you know, the nothing, <laughs> nothing that I... Uh, Nothing that I found in the course of my research uh, convinced me otherwise. Um, the only example I think I can think of in, in that regard is is maybe Robin Ventura, um, who I o- always liked. Um, but I think in doing the research, looking back at it, especially in 99, I think he was so unbelievably important to that team in a way that uh, kind of floats under the radar in part because of his own personality. He was not a, he's not a flashy guy and he wasn't, um, did he wasn't great with the press and the way that some other players were like he didn't, he wasn't one of those guys who was always, um, going to the press or sort of lobbying for himself near as near as I could tell anyway, sometimes you have to kind of read between the lines, especially if you're reading sort of like beat writer stuff or, or gamers and stuff. And you see who gets quoted and who doesn't. And he gets quoted, um, a fair amount. Uh, so it's not like the reporters didn't seek him out, but there's also plenty of examples of them sort of like trying to get him to toot his own horn and never does. Uh, like he's very, he was very much a self-deprecating person when he was a player, uh, very much uh, a guy who, who would always like try to say that he was, you know, especially on the infield, uh, you know, thinking about the 1999 Mets and their rep as possibly the greatest infield ever defensively. Um, there's a whole Sports Illustrated article about him or worlds ostensibly about the infield but the article is mostly about him and most of the article is him trying to deflect praise and trying to praise everybody else on that infield and it's a it's a very odd thing to read because i it seems like they wanted to profile robin ventura and it's almost like he didn't give them enough to do that. And they kind of had to fall back on like (laughs) making it about the, the entire infield. (laughs) So yeah, I think if I had to pick anybody, it might be him, even though I did really like him at the time. I think a lot of what he did and what he meant to that team is obscured just by his own refusal to (laughs) be in the spotlight. See for me, a guy that I, I guess just, you know, the, just the haze of memory had made a more important player 
than he was was uh, Benny Agbayani. You know, he just seemed to me to be a you know a really um, sort of again really endemic of the team and sort of the the young players that weren't supposed to be superstars coming up to being significant. And, and he was still very good for that team. But looking back, he was not he was nowhere near the phenomenon that I had sort of built him up to be in my head. And part of that is probably because I was young and also because, you know, as a 17-year-old, I wasn't watching every game or um, you know, living and dying with the team the way I do now. I was watching a lot of Mets games, but I had a job and I had homework to do. And, you know, so mm-hmm. I, I think it was easier to get caught up in the sort of big game moments and you know, not focus on the day-to-day of a player like Agbayani. Well, I think specifically for Benny Ibayani, he he was actually a sensation when he first came up. Like I think his first month or so uh, in in the bigs in 1999, he was hitting home runs left and right, and then all of a sudden he kind of fell off a cliff, and it was a while again before he hit another home run. Um, and then in the the playoffs of that year, he had a couple of moments, but in general, he 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 didn't do a huge amount in the 99 playoffs. And so that by the time you got to the spring training of next year, he was, he was in danger of starting the year in the minors and he didn't want to do that. And it might've led to an ugly situation where he would have demanded a trade. Um, And really apparently the only thing that saved him was him hitting a grand slam when the Mets were in Japan to open the season that year in 2000. And then also there were a couple of injuries to other guys like Daryl Hamilton and a couple of other players in the outfield. And he just sort of made the roster by the skin of his teeth and wound up up having a pretty good year that year. Uh, But I think, I think it's sort of maybe a mix of like what you remember and, and sort of (laughs) the reality of it, which is like, he had, he had these little moments where he was like the man, but he also had like a, a bunch of, and I, for obvious reasons, I think we, we want to remember that kind of stuff more than we do, you know, the, the two or three weeks where somebody goes, you know, Oh, for 40 or something. Right. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the subway series of 2000, because I think for a lot of Mets fans uh, of my approximate age, and it sounds like your approximate as well, that's sort of a defining moment in our fandom. And I think it's really easy to fall into this trap where you armchair quarterback your team and say, like, oh, if just, you know, if one or two things had broken this way, we would have won that series. And it's really easy to sort of make up excuses and come up with alternate histories, etc. But reading this book, I was really taken by just how the Mets really would have had a chance if just one or two things broken differently. If Timo Perez had run things could have been very different. If Bobby Valentine had made more of a stink when Clemens hit Piazza in the head, things could have been very different. It's it's really amazing to me how... And I hit Piazza in the head, I'm sorry, through the bat at Piazza. Um, you know, it's just amazing to me how many little moments really did determine that uh, that series. When you were going back and doing research, was it just immensely painful to be reliving how close the Mets came in some of those moments? Oh yeah, definitely. And like having to, you know, I watched as many games as I could 
for, you know, as, as many as I had available to me while writing the book and obviously had to rewatch the entire uh, 2000 series uh, a couple of times and, you know, found games one and of course games, game five to be particularly <laughs> painful. Um, yeah. I mean, I agree with you that it it's definitely would have been if just a couple of things had gone the other way, um, the Mets absolutely could have won that series. Um, and I talk about it a lot in the book just to, give everything context but for most maybe it's not fair to say most but for a lot of the 2000 season um people were uh the media and fans were very much in love with the Mets and they very much thought that they were the more exciting more fun team and that the Yankees were old and tired uh they ended their season the Yankees did uh on a horrible streak and basically only won their division because everybody else in the division was was just not good uh it was either you know either had huge injuries or just just weren't up to just kind of ran out of time to try and catch the yankees but they ended their season terribly and uh it was probably just them taking it easy um because they did have an older team and they probably knew that they had to rest up for the playoffs. Um, and they struggled throughout the first round of their playoffs against the A's. Uh, they a little less so in the, the championship series against the Mariners. Um, but people were constantly writing about the Yankees. You know, it's constantly writing about the end of their dynasty, constantly writing about how old and and boring they were. That was the that was the big thing that so many people were writing that they were basically boring to watch. And I think that uh, the I think a lot of people not only thought that the Mets could overtake them that year, but really wanted them to and really wanted them to do that as a sort of a. As sort of a sort of like a corrective to this like monolithic Yankees team just winning year after year. And when it didn't happen, it was like a, it was not just depressing if you were necessarily a Mets fan. It was just sort of depressing of like, of the sort of idea of like, well, this just, you know, it just doesn't matter, (laughs) you know, like things, (laughs) you know, it's just, well, they're just going to win for an ever forever and ever, even, when they look like they might be toppled, like they just win. That's all that happens. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it was definitely painful to watch a bunch of, a bunch of these games. And, you know, I feel like it would have been better if somehow the Mets had gotten swept and lost like 10, nothing in every game. Right. You would just be like, well, they like, they were just outclassed. Yeah. Yeah. The better team, like they just got clobbered. Like it was just no, um, there's just no comparison, but it was just the fact that it was so close, but they still lost was just made, made things that much more painful. And I touch on it a little bit in the book, but it kind of parallels to the 2015 team, which, uh, another team that lost the world series in five games in a series where they could have and should have won like three of the games that they lost. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, uh, another incredibly painful yeah. memory for a lot of us. <laughs> Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Um, you know, I, I don't like playing this kind of game, but I think you, as somebody who's revisited this team so these teams rather so recently you just have context that that most of our listeners just don't have or haven't had in a very long time because you know not a lot of us have been able to go back and watch a lot of those games which is i do want to talk to you about that in just a minute but you know how do you think the next couple of years might have looked for the mets had they even if they didn't win the world series but if they had just been more competitive in the world series do you think that the mets would have continue to spend the way they did do you think that this was always sort of the end of the arc you know again it's impossible to know but sort of looking back what do you think the team would have looked like had they won the world series or at least won a couple more games in the world series um well i think if i think if they had actually won the world series that would have been like just I think like heads would have exploded all over the place <laughs> and that and then it almost wouldn't have mattered anything it almost wouldn't have mattered what happened after that. Like they could have had like 20 losing seasons in a row after that. But if they had beaten the Yankees in the world series, like that's a, that's a trophy you can hold over your head till the end of time. Um, I think if they've been a little bit more competitive, I don't know if it would have made a huge amount of difference because, um, you know, it was not, those teams were not, um, built to last really again harking back to the the steve phillips thing of him you know having so many veterans on the team so many guys who were already about to be on the downside of their careers um i talked about robin ventura earlier he had a terrible year in 2000 um you know he's he had some important contributions throughout the season and throughout the playoffs but for the most part he was already beginning his decline basically um and the same was true for a a lot of players on that team i mean mike piazza wouldn't have too many more really great seasons after 2000 um you know he'd have some but you know nothing compared to what he had done up to that point uh so i feel like it probably like if they had had a little better showing in the world series probably would have made much difference uh in terms of like what you know like that it would have meant that they would have had a more sustained success because to sustain that success they would have had to keep uh spending and they did to a certain extent try to do that there's 
we all know the like sort of the ones that got away, like they didn't make a serious play for Alex Rodriguez uh, or Vladimir Guerrero at that time. They did try and spend money uh, on guys like Mo Vaughn and Roberto Alomar not too long <laughs> after the 2000 uh, series, and that did not work out well, as, as I'm sure most people remember. So it's not like they didn't try. They essentially tried to do the same thing they had done that had got them almost to the mountaintop in 2000, and it didn't work out. So, you know, with the same, assuming the same front office and the same philosophy in place, I'm not, I'm honestly not sure that it would have made much of a difference. Now, I want to talk a bit about the research you did for this book. You mentioned before that you watched as many games as you could to sort of bone up on, on you know, what happened during the average game during the season. But Major League Baseball makes it very, very hard for fans to do that. And so I'm not going to ask you to betray your sources of games <laughs> or anything like that. But do you have any sort of, um, I don't want to say insight because that's the wrong word, but what do you think fans would gain if it was easier for us all to go back and watch games from that season? Do you think that that there's a market for that outside of, you know, the diehards, like, like the two of us, do you think that people would learn more about the game? Would, would we be better students of the game? You know, just sort of how would things be different if everybody could have access to, you know, 50, let's say games from these seasons? I mean, I think there would be, I'd like to think that there would be lots of people would be interested in something like that. And I think that, I mean, the thing that I always find fascinating when you go back and you watch just a full game from, and you know, really from any era um, that you get such a picture of what's the same, what's changed. Um, you know, so many things, so many times watching, uh, watching games from these two seasons and just thinking to myself, oh, well, that wouldn't be a strike now. Or, um, you know, well, they would call that as a check swing, you know, nowadays, but they didn't back then. Or um, you see the the way that people approach at-bats is different. Um, you know, there's so many little things that you would notice in the, I think, in sort of the way that the game is played or the way that players approach the game that um, gives you, you know, it gives you a, a real snapshot of of uh, of the era. Even just to hear the announcers, the way they talk about the game, it's very different. Um, you know, you wouldn't hear people talking about pitch counts, um, and that's not to say that that's a good or a bad thing, but it's a thing that you would notice for sure. Um, that you just sort of be a reminder of, like, oh yeah, like they used to not talk about pitch counts all the time. <laughs> Um, I mean, I would, I would love to see that anytime I, I see like an old game on, on YouTube and, um, it's actually gotten a lot. I've noticed the last couple of years has actually gotten a little easier. Um, if you go on YouTube, there's a lot of just random regular season baseball games on YouTube. They're just there. Uh, I guess MLB is not as, uh, as maybe as litigious or, um, or, you know, enforcing that kind of thing as much as they used to. So I think that, um, you know, there's, there are some resources out there. It's very random, uh, of course, like you can find 
you know, maybe two games from one season, uh, another game from another season. It's kind of all over the place. So there's no way that you could like piece together just on YouTube, like a full portrait of an entire, you know, team's season. But there is a lot of good stuff out there right now, you know, knock on wood, uh, that, you know, people can find and, and, and take a peek at. But yeah, I, w- I would love to see something where baseball just offered something like that. Um, I don't know that they, they even could. I think people, my impression is that baseball doesn't have a lot of full broadcasts of things. I think they have a lot of them. But they certainly don't have like every game, you know, going back 50 years or whatever. I mean, uh, so it's probably a case where baseball literally doesn't have a lot of stuff. They'll have like highlights and so forth, but they don't have like the full game. And so that might be a factor into why they don't offer something like that. Mm-hmm. How many games do you estimate you watched from these two seasons while writing the book? Um, well, every playoff game for sure. Um, I probably watched, um, hmm, that's a good question. I, you know, I nowhere near a full season, of course, um, cause I was only able to get my hands on, uh, a relatively small amount of games. I would say at least, um, I would say at least 20 or 30 games per regular season games for each of the seasons. Um, and then there's also, uh, there's also a good number of, uh, radio broadcasts that you can find out there. And I've, uh, some of which overlap with the games, some of which the, you know, or some of which overlap with the games that I was able to watch some, right. some of which don't, uh, for instance, I wasn't able to find an actual, um, TV broadcast, of there was a game in 1999 where Edgardo Alfonso went six for six at the Astrodome and had like just a game for the ages. Um, and I really wanted to find, I just wanted to watch it. Cause again, as I, I think, as I said earlier, he was one of my favorite players. I could not find that game, could not find video of that game, but I was able to find a, uh, uh, a radio broadcast of it, of, you know, Gary Cohen and Bob Murphy calling the game, which was pretty cool. Yeah. So it was, you know, it was close enough. Yeah. Um, do you think that, uh, do you think that, that there are any real parallels between the 99-2000 Mets and the 2019 Mets that we're watching play right now? Um, hmm. They're very... I think they're very different um, in, in in sort of their strengths. Like the, I think the current Mets, obviously their biggest strength should be starting pitching. It's been a little spotty so far in the season at times, but it seems like maybe it might be rounding into shape. Um, the the 99 and 2000 Mets did not have great starting pitching. They had Al Leiter, who could be pretty good. And then the rest of their team, their staff was kind of like soft tossing guys. Um, and their pitching was made better by the aforementioned infield, uh, which, you know, basically vacuumed up anything that was hit their way. Um, they had a lot of contact pictures and that infield made sure that they, you know, that the, all of those ground balls got turned into outs, which is something that you do not see on the current Mets. <laughs> um, 
they're probably similar in somewhat in uh lineup wise although i think the uh the current mets are a little more on the left hand side than they did um those teams did um you know it's hard to say that they are kind of very different um the current mets team is has a lot more younger guys on it i think you know probably uh cano is probably or maybe todd frazier or about it for like sort of the the veterans of the lineup um whereas the 99 slash 2000 mets were kind of an old team uh at least as far as their lineup was concerned so there's not a lot of there's not a lot of parallels i think um yeah, it's really it's really hard to say. It's hard to draw too many comparisons between the two. There's they were just constructed in very different ways, and they're they're kind of very different animals. I I would probably say. Yeah, one of the things that I found really fascinating about the book is you know I watch a lot of baseball, and you sort of forget how fast the game changes when when you're confronted with looking at how many complete games were tossed for the Mets during those years from, as you said, you know, somewhat soft tossing guys. We're not talking Nolan Ryan here. We're talking, you know, guys who were, who were mediocre starting pitchers, if not throwing complete games, throwing seven, eight innings regularly and just how different bullpen usage was, you know, 20 years ago, I was really taken aback by how stark a difference there was, you know, um, between 99 and 2000 and today, even though I knew there was obviously some difference, it just, it, it really did seem, I mean, shockingly different how that, how that team pitched. Yeah. Just because, you know, the current team, and I think this is probably a baseball wide kind of thing, but, you know, emphasizing the strikeout, you know, like uh, so many pitchers are, are, I think, you know, nowadays, like, trying for a strikeout knowing that players now strike out so much and it's there's not as much of the stigma attached to it i think if you strike out a ton as there once was and you know the mets of that era you know they're behind outlier there was like rick reed and bobby jones who were who were soft tossing guys um and then they had trying in 99 they had masato yoshi who was just kind of a similar type pitcher um they were a little ahead of the curve, though, the, those uh, 99, 2000 Mets were in the, sort of their bullpen usage. They did lean on their bullpen a lot, I think a, a little more than teams of that era did. It was it had definitely already emerged, uh, you know, bullpen specialization. Um, but the Mets probably of that era did it uh, a little bit more than the team than their contemporary teams and a little more like teams do now. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause they had a pretty strong bullpen. They had uh, Turk Wendell, Dennis cook, uh, who's a veteran lefty. Uh, and then they had, uh, you know, John Franco who was their closer forever and then became a setup guy when Armando Benitez emerged. And uh, so in, in the regular season, at least, um, Benitez was, was, uh, almost unhittable for 99 and 2000. It was, uh, when they got to October that it was, that he became a little, uh, more dicey. Um, but yeah, I think that, 
you know, there were definitely differences and it was remarked on at the time, like when the Mets finally got a complete game from a pitcher, I think in like late in the 99 season, they hadn't had one in over a year. And it was, that was considered unremarkable. Whereas nowadays, I think if you were, nowadays, I think, you know, teams go without complete games for months on end and nobody bats an eye. It's just sort of accepted that that's, that's how things are done nowadays. So, so I think, you know, there was plenty of things where they were, you know, you look at it and they were definitely a product of their times, but I think especially with the bullpen usage, they were almost like a harbinger of things to come. Yeah. Yeah. I can definitely see that. I think there's, you know, Edwin Diaz hopefully is not Armando Benitez (laughs) in a lot of ways, but I think that there's sort of a similar approach there where, you know, Familia was the closer for a long time. And then you're getting in sort of this younger flamethrower to be the uh, the closer, but like I said, hopefully he's not Benitez uh, for a number of reasons. Um, I guess sort of in beginning to wrap up our conversation here, what what are you, what's your biggest takeaway from the book in terms of how the game has changed since 1999-2000? Is it the aforementioned pitching changes? Is it you? You mentioned umpiring has changed a lot since then. Just sort of overall approach at the plate. You know, what what would you say is the biggest change between players playing in ninety nine and two thousand and players playing today? Um, I think it's hard to say what the biggest thing sort of on field is. To me, a lot of what the I kept coming back to more and more while writing the book was how much has changed sort of in, in sort of a media coverage sense, the way the game is kind of covered. I, um, I kept coming back to how, um, you know, back then you had sort of, the, sort of these like mandarins of the, of the New York sports media world would sort of like interpret the game for you. And nowadays you have, you obviously have social media, you have so many other vehicles through which you can like, enjoy the game or you know share your experience of the game with other people as a fan and you don't have to sort of like read about it the next day and so you could kind of sense at that era that people like uh like a mike lupica or uh or a murray chass or somebody like that seemed to have this like almost like power over (laughs) how (laughs) players were uh perceived and if you know, they had beef with you or you clash with them or whatever, they could like set you in their sights and just kind of like, uh, you know, do their best to take you down. Um, there's certainly a lot of people who, who, uh, did that for Bobby Valentine. He basically didn't get along with anybody in the press. And, uh, there were a lot of guys who were because of that, were just never going to go to bat for him. Um, and nowadays I feel like there's a combination of, uh, the writers really not being the gatekeepers in the way they once were in terms of how players are perceived because there's so many different ways for players to interact with fans now, especially on social media. Um, but also uh, there's, there's just sort of uh, I'm trying to think of how to put it, but it, there's, there's really a, uh, you know, there's just, I'm sort of, <laughs> again, I'm sorry, it. I'm struggling. No, I'm sorry, I'm struggling to, to 
uh, to express exactly what I was. You don't have to censor yourself. That's part of it. You can say whatever. No, you no, it's not that. I think I'm just. I'm. I'm sorry. I'm. I'm. I'm drawing a blank on exactly okay. what I wanted to say. That's okay. Um, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, you know, I'm not. Uh, putting the redacted <laughs> line over anything. <laughs> but yeah, I think like it's. I think it's less. To me, again, it's less how it's played. It's more how the the game is consumed, and especially how people interact um with like almost directly with players in many ways even and even though there's so much kind of like media training and and that sort of thing um but yeah i mean that to me is like the the biggest difference and goes beyond like anything in terms of like how the game's actually played yeah i mean i the media training is an interesting aspect of it because you just got the opinion that a lot of ball players were not necessarily prepared from a young age to be in the spotlight whereas mm-hmm. today you know even players that are brought up through you know through you know f- baseball overseas where media coverage is not nearly what it is here once they're in the organization they're getting lessons to be media trained and so some of the quotes that you see the players saying from 1999-2000 would just never happen today just oh, never in a million years. You know? Yeah. And that is really interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but you're absolutely right. That's probably one of the bigger changes that has happened in the game since then. Uh, all right. Last question before we talk about where folks can get this book. Going back, looking through all of this, what emerged as your favorite memory of these two years? What was the What was the bit that you're going to cherish and hold on to forever from these teams? Hmm. That's... Uh... That's a really good question because I I don't know if it it'd be so hard to like pick out one thing. Um, I think maybe one of my one of my favorite games then and still I think you know and maybe if you asked me in a different day I'd have a different answer. But the one that just popped into my head was um, a Subway Series game at Shea in 1999 um, where the Mets won on a walk off. Uh, by pinch hitter Matt Franco. Uh, if you were around then, you probably you probably remember this game because it was even at the time considered one of the craziest games ever played at Chase Stadium. Just including like you know, Game Six and '86 and everything. Uh, it was. Uh, I think the Yankees hit six home runs in the course of the game, uh, and the Mets. Every time the Yankees would go ahead, the Mets would come back and and tie or go ahead. And there was at one point where uh, Mike Piazza hit a home run that he just completely destroyed, just like clobbered it into the uh, the parking lot. And uh, it ended with uh, the Mets loading the bases and then Matt Franco knocking in two runs after taking uh, a pitch for a ball that could definitely have been called strike three in which the Yankees were yelling at the umpire should have been strike three. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, it's in the eye of the beholder, obviously. Um, but, yeah, I, th- that game, which they used to show, they actually used to show that game on Mets Classics on SNY. I haven't seen it on there in a long time. I have a tape of it somewhere in my own archives, but... Um, but if they ever show that one again on SNY, it's one you have to like, you definitely have to sit down and take in the whole thing. It's just 
absolutely insane just to watch that game and just you can't you know 20 years on you can scarcely believe that the Mets won it yeah that's a, that's a great game I actually saw that game on Mets Classics a few years ago and was blown away by exactly that it just seemed like there are so many Mets teams of the past 20 25 years where when they would get down a couple of runs they just felt like they gave up Mm-hmm. And you watch this team just come back and come back and come back. And that's actually something I would say maybe is similar to the 2019 Mets, where they seem to have just a much greater fight this year than they had had the last couple of years. And there were games early on this season that looked like they should be out of the Mets' reach, and they came back to win or at least came back to make it you know more interesting. And that mm-hmm. seemed like a, a trait of the, of those Bobby Valentine-led teams. Um, yeah. Well, anyway, where can folks find this book if they want to buy it? I know I I was part of the pre-order process for it, but you know now that it's out there, where can folks buy the book? Uh, well, it's basically available wherever books are sold online. Um, you know, you can certainly go to Amazon. You can go to Barnes and Noble. Um, you know, you can go to those websites and and order it there. It's it's available in EPUB form too. So if you'd rather read it uh digitally it's uh, available in that format um i like to tell people to go to indiebound.com be- uh just because uh if you order it there you can order it through a local bookstore a smaller bookstore and then you know they get the you know <laughs> they get the cash um as opposed to an enormous place that probably needs your cash less than your small local bookstore does um and then you can you know if you want you can pick it up there. And, uh, you know, I just think it's a better, uh, it's a better route, but, um, I you know, support that. I've never even heard of that before, but I yeah, it's just called, that. uh, indie bound. Um, another alternative is the book is published by ink shares. Um, that's the name of the publisher. You can order directly from them too. Um, but essentially if you Google yells for ourselves anywhere, it'll bring up a link for you to buy it. And in some format, now, uh, before we let you go, do you think that you're ever going to write about the Mets again? Do you think that this is the uh, the swan song of your Mets writing career? Where, 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 do you, where do you see yourself in the Mets converging again, if at all? I really couldn't say. Um, writing this book was, I think you called it a labor of love earlier, and it was, definitely was that. Um, I think I would probably have to... Um, find another Mets related subject that was, uh, <laughs> that I wanted to work on for several years again, if I was going to do that. Um, I would, I would never say never. Um, I have no current plans to write something like this again, but you know, I, I think it's also wise to, again, never say never. Uh, are you working on a, a new book now you can tell us about? Um, I, I still do writing, um, mostly sort of in the fiction vein, um, do a, a few nonfiction things here and there. Um, nothing that's coming out or imminent, just, just stuff I'm kind of working on for myself at the moment. And, you know, maybe it'll be out there someday and, uh, uh, maybe not, but it's very much, uh, you know, <laughs> it's all sort of, uh, in a, you know, draft type stage on my laptop and where can folks find you online find your writing etc um 
Uh, if you want to catch me online, uh, I'm on Twitter at ScratchBomb. Um, and I guess if anything, everything writing-wise for me comes out in the near future or the distant future, you'll probably hear about it there. Okay. So uh, that is definitely a place where folks should should check you out. You are very entertaining on Twitter. I've been a long-time uh, Twitter follower of yours. And uh, I just want to say, you know, th- thanks for writing this book. This is... This is something the Mets are very bad at, which is celebrating their past. And I don't know if if it's the Mets, you know, whether it's them only retiring the numbers of folks who go into the Hall of Fame as Mets or just their general lack of, until very recently, sort of alumni presence. But it seems like if you weren't telling the story this year, we wouldn't be hearing about this story this year. You know, there's a lot of celebrations happening right now for the 69 Mets, and rightfully so. You know, that that is, you know, the defining team of the Mets' entire franchise. But there's been no, almost no mention made of the 99 Mets so far this season. And for an entire generation of fans, myself included, and, and you included, you know, this team is the reason that many of us remained Mets fans. And so I wish the team would do more to celebrate their own past. And so thank you for doing it because we know that they won't. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it. And um, um, I mean, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. I kind of wrote this book because I had a feeling that nobody else was going to write the book or, uh, and certainly that the Mets weren't necessarily going to um, do anything <laughs> to honor these teams. Um, I feel like maybe they're turning a little bit of a corner. Seems like they've had a lot of guys uh, a lot of uh, Mets alums at City Field already this year. I think I saw a game earlier this year where actually Turk Wendell was. Yeah, I saw that game in too. the ground. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So maybe it feels like maybe they're trying to do a little bit more, and you know, maybe somebody's nudging them in the right direction. If they if they are doing that, I I, I certainly hope it they continue doing that. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for having me on, and and uh, I, you know, I I'm glad that. You know, I'm I'm glad that uh, you know you enjoyed it uh, and that uh, people get to check it out. Yep, yeah, uh, listeners, follow Matt on Twitter, pick up the book, and uh, let's continue this conversation online. Thanks again to Matt Callen for coming on the show. Go to AmazingAvenue.com where you can find uh, archives of Matt's former work as well as all of our writing about the team, the current team. Uh, as sad as that may be, uh, it's all there at AmazingAvenue.com. You can find more uh, podcasts, more news, more analysis, everything you could ever want there. As well as on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. I'm at Brian Is an App, and we're out of time. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.